Okay, well, so I would love to have a wholehearted good morning from you guys. So can we do that together? One, two, three. Good morning. All right, welcome. Good morning. I was just talking to somebody who said he was working until 2.30. And so uh, that, that was a little pick-me-up for you and for me. Um, so welcome to Cross Point Downtown. Uh, week by week, we go through verses, uh, book, uh, books of the Bible, verse by verse. And so before we get started... In our sermon today in the book of Hebrews, I wanted to give a little recap of our vision night from uh, this past Sunday evening. So on Sunday evening, we had a vision night. It poured down raining 30 minutes beforehand, and we all got soaking wet coming in here. And we had this bare bones uh, fitnasium here that we've brought the church into, and we casted the vision for what God would have us do in 2018. And what is that vision? People ask me, what is the vision that you have for Cross Point Downtown? And, and really, the vision is quite simple. The vision is that we would see a church established for years to come that points people to Jesus Christ right here in the heart of downtown Orlando. So let me tell you why that is significant. Orlando right now is the eighth most unchurched city in our nation, according to Barna Research. Number eight, most unchurched city in our nation. That's significant because it, it follows Seattle. Seattle is number seven. Orlando is number eight. And so you would think that Seattle would be more unchurched than we are, and they are, but just by about one percentage point. And so this is Orlando in 2018. It is a mission field that is broad. It is a mission field that is moving further and further away from God. But we are here to say God is here and he is calling you in to come close. And so uh, that is uh, an important reason. Number two, we're the sixth most de-churched city in the nation. That means that people are pushing eject on faith fast in Orlando. They were previous churchgoers, and they're not active churchgoers anymore. How many of you know people like that? We all have friends and family that are people that are like that. And by the grace of God, we're going to call back the drifters. And maybe you're here today, and you're part of that category. I say welcome. The book of Hebrews talks about that we are all in need of these reminders, and we've all drifted from the faith, and we have a God who pursues after us. And so the vision of Crosspoint is to pursue after the drifters and those who are far from God. And how are we going to do that? Well, when I dream about what God might stir in Crosspoint downtown, how I, we might be uh, not a fly-by-night church that experiences growth very quickly and then fizzles down, but how we might build over decades and decades so that this church would outlive me and outlive you by the grace of God. I pray that God would allow us to do three things and do these three things well. Number one, create a culture of discipleship. Create a culture of discipleship. If you went to Vision Night the other night, these have been refined somewhat. This is leadership development. I want to see leaders that are raised up for the gospel, that make an impact, and they realize that their influence is bigger than themselves. Maybe you've come in here today and you think, I'm not a leader. And here's what I would say to that. God has given you influence. God has given you influence in the lives of somebody, in some way, in some form. And if you're a Christian, you may not say you're not a leader. And I don't think the 12 disciples thought that of themselves either. But they were disciples that God used to change the face of the world. 
And they turn the world upside down by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to create a culture of discipleship. For me, what it looks like is walking in repentance. Because in the last two years, I've found the difficult hard, and I've had to learn so much. Humble reliance is what I've called it, and humble repentance. I've had to learn confidence on my knees, that leadership isn't, look at me, I'm, I'm truly amazing, look how special I am. Leadership in the church is humility, it's service. There's an author, his name is Tony Marita, and He says that when you think church planter, don't think rock star. Think farmer. Farmer who works his tail off from early in the morning until sundown. And then he begs God for rain. And that's what we're doing. We are reliant upon God. And whether you'd like it or not, if you're a part of this church, you are a church planter, friends. You are helping us plant Cross Point Downtown to be for years to come. Number uh, two is we want to a part of that culture of discipleship is we want to develop a, a a leadership pipeline, a place where people who are new in the faith can come in and, and be discipled and grow as disciple, and God can use them as community group leaders or ministry team leaders, or God would even give them confidence to reach their neighbor or to reach someone in their workplace. We want to develop a leadership pipeline. The second big thing that we want to do is we want to create a culture of connection. Culture of connection. Connection to the body of Christ. God's methods for reaching the world today is the church. To see guests who come through the door. Many of you are guests here today. I don't know your journey. I don't know your story. But I know God's at work. And I know He wants to connect you to the greater body. So from meet cross point to partnership in the gospel and some of the things we're doing, we want to create a clear flow that everybody understands where they're at in growing As a part of our church, we're calling it My Growth Story. You'll hear more about that in time to come. And then number three, we want to create a culture of worship. A culture of worship. Where community is biblical and robust. Where where service is joy-filled. And where disciples are making disciples that are making disciples. And my prayer in the creating a culture of worship, this is the biggest one. That one day... God would use us to call down revival on this city. And he would use us with other like-minded churches to pray, your kingdom come, Lord, your will be done. And the Spirit of God would be so undeniably present that we can't escape it. So how can you be on board with this? I want to offer to you two dates. Two dates. Number one, communal prayer is Wednesday, October 25th. That's where we're praying together. We have times of worship and times of prayer. And that's at Downtown Credo Coffee Shop at 6.30 p.m. We're going to start on our knees in prayer. So join us on October 25th. If you've never been to a prayer gathering, please come to these things. They're so powerful. And I'm telling you, friends, you will allow God to move in your heart in a significant way. Number two, Leadership Sync is on Sunday, November 5th. We're going to have lunch together. Child care is provided. At that leadership sink, we're going to be unpacking some of the implementation of the leadership pipeline and also our growth story. How do people get connected as guests to a partner? And how do they become a partner to a leader? We're going to unpack some of those things. And and I want you to ask, where's my place in that? How can I help? How can I be a part of that? How can God use me 
And we're going to start putting some of the pieces together. So that's an open invitation to that leadership sync on November 5th. Okay, let me pray. Let's get going. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you're creating a culture of discipleship today. You're creating a culture of connection right now. And that, Lord, we call down the power of your spirit. May he come in power. May his presence be inescapable for us. God, we know that as Josiah read in that psalm, there's no place where we could run. From the bottom to the top, Lord, you are there. From every dark corner and crevice of this world, God, you are there. And right here in this room, you are with us. Move powerfully. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us hearts that would believe that Jesus is Lord in your name. Amen. Okay. Um, So we're in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. I've said it a couple times. God is pursuing after us. That's the theme of Hebrews chapter 2, 5 through the end. God is pursuing after us. We studied last week Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. We read that they were drifting from the faith. Who was drifting from the faith? Well, this is a group of Jewish Christians who have never seen Christ, but yet they believe in Him. And one commentator by the name of Timothy Lane said it was a a group of Jewish Christians whose world was falling apart. They were being rejected by their families. They were being rejected when they went to the temple to worship. They were being alienated in different ways. There may have been loss of jobs. There may have been imprisonment. There was rejection from culture. It was hard to be a Christian in this time period, especially if you converted from Judaism. And the author is telling them, hold on to your faith in Christ. It's the best thing that you have. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Hold on to your faith. Maybe today you're here and you find your faith hard. Maybe you're here today and you find yourself in the midst of ridicule or persecution or being slandered or reviled because of your faith in Christianity. And you might say, I should just drop this thing and life would become much easier. But the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is greater. He's saying, don't drift from the gospel. Don't drift from the gospel. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you would know that that's a pretty hard thing to do, isn't it? To stay steadfast in your faith. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you know that there's different things that try to compete to become Lord in your life, to become supreme in your life. But the author of Hebrews is calling for a reorientation of our lives around this person, Jesus Christ. And He is greater. In Hebrews chapter 1, he gives us this zoomed out picture of that. He's, Jesus is greater than the angels. And you've you got to think that the people of Hebrews, the, the, the Jewish Christians in their day, may have thought that Jesus was somehow less than an angel because he became a man. And so how could Jesus be greater if he was just a mere human being? And, and how could he be so great if he died that humiliating death on the cross? And he says that he is higher than any and everything. And this height of God's love brings a depth of a personal reality that who Jesus is and what he has done applies to your life right now in a very personal 
way. So, so maybe you thought God to be far off. Maybe you've thought God to be unapproachable. Maybe you've thought God has no idea what you're going through. That God has no idea of your life today. That He can be of no help to you. Well, the author of Hebrews tells us, no, He is. He is our ever-present help in our time of need. So I want you to know that maybe you come in here with a struggle of faith. A tension in your faith. I want you to know that that's not new to historical Christianity. And it's not, you're not alone in that. In fact, the, the chairs are filled with people today. The pulpit, right here, is filled with people today. Pulpits across our land are filled with people who stay, have that very same struggle. I, I, find it, I find it interesting when I talk to people about my faith and my struggles. When I do that, sometimes they, they, they think it's you know, kind of weird that a pastor might struggle with their faith. They think it's somewhat unique that a pastor would struggle with their faith. But I'm telling you, friends, it's not unique. It's not abnormal. Anybody who's living and breathing and worshiping Christ has had their faith tested. I've had my faith tested. The Apostle Paul says it this way as he's ministering to his young apprentice, Timothy. He says, this is a trustworthy saying deserving full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. So if Paul, the guy who wrote much of the New Testament, can say that I know not a greater sinner than me. And Paul was a a big time sinner. Persecutioner of Christians. One who held the cloak of the murderers of the first martyr Stephen. But Paul was also one of the most powerful converts to Christ that history has ever seen. And he can confess open-heartedly to his young apprentice Timothy, I am the chief of sinners. And I think we can all come to that confession that we are the chief of sinners because there's no one that we can cast judgment on more than ourselves. Meaning that you should have your sin in full view today. But I pray that your sin is in full view at the same time the cross is bigger and the cross is greater and the cross has an overwhelming conquering power to see that your sin does not define you and Jesus has set you free. Albert Muller says that this passage here in Hebrews 2, 5 through 18 shows us that Christ is the white hot center of God's purposes and plan for humanity. Christ is the white hot center of God's purposes and plan for humanity. There's a movement today in America to say, I want Christianity, but I don't want Jesus. And I would say that's a movement of religion and not true Christ-centered biblical Christianity. A movement to say, I want 
religion, but I don't want Jesus. I want your faith. I want your traditions. I want some of your liturgy, even worship, but I don't want your Savior. I don't want your founder. And what's unique to Christianity is this person, Jesus. Because every world religion says that you have a problem and here's what you have to do to go and fix it. Right? Every world religion says, here's your problem and here's what you have to do to go to fix it. Here's what you have to do to appease God. Here's what you have to do to make yourself right with God. Christianity in Christ at the center of it says that here's what's wrong with you. Here's what you deserve because of it. While at the same time, here's the bill, here's the check that's been paid by Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to fix it. But rely on what He has done for you on your behalf. And this is what the author of Hebrews makes plain for us today. Is that Jesus is our man. Jesus is our man. Now, it's like, Jesus is the man. Yes, Jesus is the man. But Jesus is our man. There's something personal about that. Here's here's why that's important. Because the author of Hebrews knows that these people were steeped in the Old Testament. So they would have known the story from Genesis of Adam and Eve. That Adam and Eve were created by God to be his vice regents. To rule over and to have dominion over all the earth. They were the king and the queen. They would have known that Adam as the first man was given all things under his control. Under the authority of God. They would have known about the one command that God gave Adam and Eve with his voice. He told them. He loved them. He told them. This one thing. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or you will surely die. They knew that command. But Adam and Eve disregarded that command. Adam, the first man, sinned against God by disregarding God. By saying God was in effect a liar. That God didn't know what was best for him, but he knew what was best for him. As an author, Tim Keller, he says, Sin doesn't say that God doesn't exist. Sin says God doesn't matter. And what Adam did when he took the bite of that forbidden fruit is he said, God, you don't matter. How many of us have done the same thing? It's because we're under the curse. All humanity is a testimony that that one man, Adam, is the representative of the human race that plunged us into sin together. But God... But God had a plan from the foundations of the world to bring repentance and redemption through Jesus Christ. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, which by the way, this is not like a a guy who's, you know, going through memory loss here. I, I thought it's kind of an interesting verse. It's been testified somewhere. No, he quotes it verbatim. Like he quotes the scriptures It has been testified somewhere, what is man, Psalm 8, that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you should care for him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
You know, when David wrote that psalm, I have to think that David was, was out in the midst of the starry host and he was contemplating the vastness and the bigness of God and the universe and the galaxies. And he was saying, why do I matter to God? But somehow I do. Somehow I do. Out of the seven billion people on the planet today, somehow you have God's ear in his eye. He cares about you. I mean, isn't that amazing? Like the God who made our sun this big, fiery ball that if we get close to it, like close to it by like a trillion miles away, we could die. And that sun is just one of a hundred thousand million suns in the galaxies. And our galaxy, which is like a, a, a little jelly swirl in a pastry roll, is one of more than a million hundred galaxies in all the universe. And here you are like a speck of dust in the midst of a huge and vast universe and God cares for you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows everything about your life. He knows your waking up patterns and you're going to bed. He is mindful of you. He was mindful of you. He knew you before the foundations of the earth. He set you up to be kings and queens. One day, friends, one day for a little while, we're here, but for a little while, one day we will see this come to reality. Why? Because Christ redeemed what was lost at the fall because Jesus became the man that Adam could not be. Jesus became, the Bible, the theologians call him the last Adam, the truer and better Adam. Jesus wasn't born under the curse because how could God be born under the curse? Jesus lived the perfect sinless life, always regarding God's plans, always regarding His Father. He can do nothing apart from His power and His strength. And Jesus became what Adam could not be and what you and I could not be. He became man. And He was perfect he became our substitute. Jesus Christ became sin for us, is what the Bible says, even in his perfection. G.K. Chesterton says it this way, and maybe you've felt this yourself. Whatever else is true about man, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. To which I would say, Christ came to make man what he was meant to be. Worshippers of Jesus Christ with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. Yesterday was a great day for us. It was just a normal day. We, we woke up uh, and we, 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 I, I did a little yard work. I pressure washed the, the uh, pool deck and uh, family came over. Carrie's folks came over from Eustis and we went into the pool with them. Some friends came from out of town and and we went into the pool. Actually, their family from out of town. We went into the pool with them. We had a blast all day long. And, and, and we went out to dinner together. And we had barbecue, which praise God for barbecue, right? Good stuff. It was wonderful. And it was just one of those wonderful days. Have you ever had those days and you say, man, this is so good. I wish it could always be like that. But you know that it's not always going to be like that. It's because this world is not the way it was meant to be. When 60 people are killed in Las Vegas, 
Because of domestic terrorists, we know that this world is not the way it was meant to be. And we say, why? When an eight-year-old girl gets leukemia, it causes us to mourn, doesn't it? And we say, why? 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 And the whole world is trying to fix what's been wrong. That's why we spend billions of dollars on, on cancer research is because we want to fix what's wrong with this world. And here's the thing that has been through all the years of humanity. We can't do it. Christ can. Christ has. Christ will. That's the message of Hebrews right here. That Christ is our man. The next point that I'd say is Jesus is our champion. He's our champion. Verse 10 says this. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For it is fitting that he, Jesus, for whom all things exist. So Jesus as God, this is not just simply a man who lived a, a good life as his example. No, this is the one who holds all things together. This is the one who knows every bone cell and brain cell and blood cell of your body. He holds it all together by the word of his power, says Hebrews chapter 1. He is the one that God saw fitting to bring all things under His control in bringing many sons to glory. God made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. I had a question when I read this, and I was like, how, how could Jesus be made perfect when the Bible tells us He's already perfect, right? Was Jesus like less perfect? Because he was le if He was less perfect, then He was not God. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He doesn't change. And I wondered, what does this verse mean? And, and the, the further I studied, the, the more I see that, no, it, it's not that Jesus was more perfect. It's that Jesus, in order to be the perfect sacrifice, had to go through suffering and death on our behalf to be made that perfect sacrifice. There was an event in history that had to happen. And Jesus had to be born as a babe in that manger. And he had to live a life as a normal human being. That, that he was, you know, some of us read the, uh, sing the nursery rhymes and we think that it's just this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ as a babe in the manger. And, 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 but Jesus went through developmental stages just like you and me. Like he had to learn how to walk and talk and live and breathe and act. He had to learn all of those things. He, he had to learn what it means to the prepubescent stage of middle school, for crying out loud. How many of us would like to go through that again? No. Like, he went through that. He went through everything that we've had to go through as a human being. There's like nothing that we've gone through that he hasn't gone through. From birth to age 33, he was developed just like a, a, a child to a boy to a man in that time, but, but perfectly in every regard, never sinned. He was tempted. He, he suffered. He felt pain. He felt regret or rejection. But he was never, he never sinned. 
in that. And he tasted death for us on our behalf. He's our champion. Every nation, foundation, has a champion. George Washington is our champion of the United States. Martin Luther King Jr. is the champion of the civil rights movement. He started something that today people are continuing to ride the coattails of to see that freedom and equality is for all people. He's the champion of that movement. We have the champion of Apple computers is Steve Jobs, right? Even though he's came and gone, like I've got an iPhone here telling me how far I'm going to go over the service today. I've got an iPod in my pocket that's recording right now. Steve Jobs is the champion of that, right? Jesus is the champion of salvation. He is the one who founded it. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith, says Hebrews. Now orient your life around Him. Don't neglect Him. When the author of Hebrews says, how can we neglect such a great salvation? It's saying, how can you remove Jesus from your life and not expect to be punished for it? How can you remove Him? And isn't that what we do? Isn't that what the world does? We, we seek to remove Jesus because it's, it's so much easier, we think. It's so much more c- convenient. But haven't you gone through that emptiness when that's happened? Like, haven't you felt this God-shaped hole in your heart that can't be filled by these other things that you think are going to satisfy you? He is our champion. He's our founder. Kent Hughes says, Our salvation is the greatest display of God's power and character. Salvation tells us something about God. And it says that God is perfect in every way. And and listen here, it says that God is loving. God is loving. You, You go out on the streets today in downtown Orlando and you preach that God is loving the way that the Bible does... You will be ridiculed. You will be maligned. You will be called a hate monger. Won't you? But truth is loving, isn't it? If this is true, it has to be told. If this is true, it has to be told. And I come to tell you that the reason why Jesus told us it wasn't because he was a psycho that should have been in an insane asylum. No, Jesus told us of it because it was true. Either Jesus was on the level of a poached egg, says C.S. Lewis, and absolutely out of his mind, or he was who he said he was. He's God. And he goes on to say, Kent Hughes says, Christ our Savior blazed the trail of salvation that we can now follow. He blazed the trail for us. He set in motion. Salvation is the starting point of our faith. This conversion where the old is gone and the new has come. Like, here's the thing about Christianity and becoming a Christian. You can't explain it. Have you ever asked, been asked to share your testimony? And you like thought you would just share this like absolutely wonderful testimony. And everybody would be like, oh my gosh, that was so amazing. And, and, and hear this wonderful, powerful story. And th- those stories are, are, are great. But they don't tell the real story. Is that the old man is dead and the new man is alive. You can't explain that. I was once this way, but now I'm this way. It was like John Newton in his song, Amazing Grace. I was once a wretch. 
I was once a wretch. The, the, the thing I love about the Bible is like sin doesn't have a pecking order. Like all sins are damnable offenses. Every single sin. Like the white lie to murder, they're both equally equally punishable offenses by a holy and righteous God. They all deserve hell, fire, and damnation. Right? And, and so you can't say I was, that, I was like a, a good person. No, no, the Bible's not about being a good person. The Bible's about being a new person, a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That's why we baptize people. Because it shows that you went down under the water of God's judgment and you came out alive. Like Noah and the ark, they went into the boat on that day when the rains and the floods were coming down. And the rains and the floods came down as a way of God judging the unrighteous. And all the unrighteous died. But those who put their faith in God went into the boat and they rose above the waters. Here's another interesting thing about Noah's ark, which is, by the way, a symbol for us of the church, is that, man, that ark must have stunk, didn't it? All those animals in there, I mean, it was stinky. That's, a, that's another illustration for the church. It stinks. Like, like we go through mess. We go through brokenness. We go through sin and it's smelly. But if you get out, you're dead. Like this is why God brings back the drifters. Because Jesus is taking our brokenness and our mess and he is making it beautiful. Because one day we'll open up that boat and we'll see the lighting, glorious Son of God appearing in all of his splendor and glory and majesty. And we will say, Jesus is greater, Jesus is worth it. Amen. Jesus is our champion, Jesus is our brother. Jesus is our brother. Now, Jesus is our brother. Maybe you're thinking about your siblings right now. Not my, I am not worshiping my brother. I am not worshiping my brother. My brother would say the same thing about me, and my sister especially would, because I was horrible to her before I was like 15. It was like, oh my gosh. Sometimes I think today I'm still being punished because of that. Anyway, for he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified have one source, one source, one family, one source. The one who makes perfect and the one who makes us perfect, the, one who are, the ones who are being made perfect have one source, and that source is God. Jesus comes out of God, and because He does, so do we. Like we're one in Him. There's solidarity in Christ. There's union in Him. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You've got a brother that sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. The reason why the Israelites continued to live in the midst of, uh, of difficulties and trials is because God put Joseph who was the brother of these brothers that tried to have him killed, and he put him right next to the Pharaoh, the prince of Egypt, in the famine, and the brothers came before Joseph, who they tried to have killed, and they begged him for mercy, and guess what the brother Joseph did very perfectly? In the eyes of God, he pleaded for them, and they were given food, and they, the people of Israel were saved. Jesus Christ is the brother that we sought to have killed. Jesus Christ is the brother who we have sinned against. Jesus Christ now, though, pleads perfectly on our behalf 
in the thrones of heaven. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of this congregation. I will sing of your praise. And I will put my trust in him again. Behold, I and the children God has given me. He is our brother. You know the story of the prodigal son, right? There's the story of of the, the younger son who takes his father's inheritance early in those time in that time period it would have been one third of of the father's estate and he cashes out and he goes and he begins to drift doesn't he like it's not just drifting he's taking the speedboat and he's going way 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 far away from his father and his household and he goes to Las Vegas and he squanders all of his money and he realizes that all of this that he's done has led him to feeding pigs in the pigsty. It's led him to feeding pigs of the pigsty. He's not better because of it, but he is worse because of it. And he starts looking at the food that the pigs are eating, and he says, man, if I could just eat a little bit of that food. And he says, what am I doing? What am I doing, man? If I, if I could just be a servant in my father's household, it would be much better than this. Right? If I could just be a servant in my father's house. So, so, he, so he begins to rehearse this speech in his head. And, and, he, and, and, he, and he walks to, uh, the, takes this long journey to meet his father. And the thing that the son doesn't realize is that the father has actually been sitting on the front porch for quite some time with his binoculars. Waiting for his son to come home. That's God, by the way. Like his father's just been waiting there for his son to come home. And... and, and, and and his father sees the son approaching. And he begins to tear up. And he goes out. And he runs and he meets that son. And he embraces him and says, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then the son starts trying to, the son starts trying to rehearse this speech about why his dad should bring him in as a servant. And he says, no, I will hear nothing of it. And he takes the ring of the household and he puts it on the son's finger. And he takes the robe of the household and he puts it on the son. He says, you are my son. You're my blood. I'm not rejecting you. This is what God has done. And if you know the story a little bit more, you know that they kill the fatted calf and they throw a feast. And there's another brother, the older brother, who's been around for a long time. And he's done everything that's required of him to be the good son, hasn't he? He's been there. He's doing the chores. He's deserving of this full inheritance. And the older son says, Dad, come on, man. You haven't even killed a calf for me. I don't wear the same robe that he has. Are you serious? And, 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 and then the, the father pleads with this older brother. says, come into the feast. Come into the feast. My son who was lost is now found. Come celebrate. And if you know that story, you know that, that sometimes we could be the younger brother, can't we? The one who goes and lives this self-indulgent lifestyle. And we could be the older brother, can't we? The one who's very self-righteous, thinking somehow we deserve God's love. And you know what both of them are deserving? The same punishment of hell. And you know what we need? We need a perfect older brother. That's what Jesus is. He's the son that went out to find the brother who was lost and wondering. He's the son that went and found him in the midst 
of his sin. And in that pigsty. And he brought that son back before the father. And he says, Dad, I've got him. I've got him. Your son is home. I've brought him back to you. When Jesus brought many sons to glory, that's what that means. That he brought us home to God. He did all things that we could not do. In fact, it was our brother that died on the cross for our sins. And he defeated sin and death and Satan on our behalf. That's what our older brother did. Your, your, old, your older brother can't do that, nor could your little sister. Jesus did it. Angels can't do that. Why do angels fear to tread where we tread? Because Jesus defeated sin, death, and Satan on our behalf. Think about death for a moment. We hate to think about death, don't we? We hate to think about death. My son, I, I think if there's any questions that he asks repetitively, it's about death. He'll go to bed at night and I could see him looking in, 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 in the ceiling. I said, son, what are you thinking about? He's like, I don't want to die. <laughs> I'm like, I'm with you, son. I'm with you. But then I, I tell him about the, the, what Jesus did to defeat death. So that death is not our slave master. He, here's why death is our slave master. Because it tells us that we better get everything that we can while we can right now. That's why death is our slave master. If your marriage isn't good enough, you better go find a better marriage. If you're not married yet, you better hurry. You better hurry. That clock is ticking. Death tells us that life is like a video game and here's your chance and you better do it as fast as you can. Doesn't it? Death tells you that you better get all the money you can and live the life you can while you can because this is it, game over after that, and you don't want to have wasted your life. That's a lie, I tell you. If you live like that, you are living a lie. But the promise of Christ is that I've defeated death so that you can truly live. So you don't have to be under that curse of slavery anymore. It means that Jesus dealt the death blow to death on the cross because he, as a man, endured that death on our behalf. One author and commentator, his name's Robert Hughes, he says that our hell he made his, that his heaven might be ours. Our hell he made his so that his heaven might be ours. He took our hell and he gave us his heaven. That's what he did on the cross. And he gave us life in life eternal and that eternal life he says that death has no power over you and by the way satan himself has no power over you because on the cross he extinguished the power of the enemy because guess what the enemy's ace card is every time it's death and he took the teeth. He went down to the depths of Sheol and he took his shepherd's staff and he knocked the teeth out of that wolf and he put him on a leash. He has no power over you. This is the power of Jesus Christ. Verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, 
Jesus had to do this. If salvation were to take place, this is what had to happen. He had to be made like a man in every way to go through man's punishment. That's what propitiation means. It means that God has a righteous wrath. And that righteous wrath burns against undeserving sinners. And it means that His face was turned away from you for your sin. And His face turned to Christ. And it means that your sin was put upon Him and God's wrath burned upon Jesus. And Jesus drank down every last ounce of God's wrath down to the dregs. Nothing left. It means that He took your sin. It means that God's anger and His righteousness was satisfied by the perfect sacrifice. If Jesus wouldn't have done that, we would be the ones deserving of hell. If Jesus didn't do that, then we would be the ones that took God's wrath. But it was for a time because Jesus rose again. He didn't spend forever in that tomb. He spent Friday and Saturday and then Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit quickened His corpse to life. And He was the acceptable sacrifice that says, truly it is finished. Because at His resurrection, He gives you the resurrection life. You see, the sacrificial system says that blood had to be shed. That something had to be done for sin. And what was done for sin was the sufficient work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Do you see what I mean when I say that the God of the heavens cares for you? He cares for you that He left His throne and He came down and He brought you back to where you belong. Into the arms of God. That's propitiation. He's our priest. He's our priest. It means that He's our helper. The priest would have to have this religious ritual that they would go through in order to be acceptable in the holiest of holies. And they would have to offer sacrifices for themselves and the people. Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus came as the perfect priest and didn't offer any sacrifices for himself. And that's what made him the perfect sacrifice. He came and he offered himself. He laid down his life for you. And what the author of Hebrews is calling the church to do then, and what God is calling the church to do today, is orient your whole life around that. Are you going through problems right now? If that doesn't matter, then your problems won't be solved the way they should. Are, are you going through difficulties right now in, in your life in some way, shape, or form? This message is the most practical message that you can ever imagine for your life right now. And so, I want us to contemplate that as we worship today. That we would consider that Christ is our perfect high priest who stands ready to help. It means that God knows everything. It means that you can go to God right now. When you go to that communion table, you take your thing that you've been thinking about the last few days, the last few weeks, the last few months. Heck, maybe it's been the last few years. You lay that before your helper. Because He is very present in this time of need. And you take communion and you take the bread remembering that it was not your blood, your body that was broken, it was Christ. 
And you remember it wasn't your blood that was shed, but it was Jesus's. And you received that fully and gladly. And we worship God together. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. That you are what we could never be. And that you are ours. You are mine. And that you know everything about us. Thank you for pursuing after us, God. And we, we lay our, our stuff before you, our sin, our shame, our brokenness. And we know that you stand before God and you say, there's my brother, there's my sister. And you plead for us. You're our high and perfect plea. And we sing to you, King Jesus, and we worship you in Christ's name. Church says, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing this song in reflection and repentance before we take communion. And Micah will lead us up in our time of communion.